0: God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus.
1: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly, I believe. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about was spoken in our Matthew's read, Matthew reading today from Carla. This is how the birth, um, it's, it's interesting in, in the Greek, it's almost like this is how the Genesis, this is how the origin of this thing came about here at this point in Matthew's gospel. And what's been interesting this year, for those of you who don't know, there are, there are sort of, um, there's the Revised Common Lectionary, um, that used to be the common lectionary. We always add a name instead of just saying we updated it. But I always wonder what they'll call the new ones. This is an aside, like the revised, revised common lectionary, or like you read the new international version of the Bible, will the new one be the renewed international? Um, we always just put new or something like that. Christianity fell in love with marketing. New. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyways, um, the revised common lectionary provides, uh three readings for these Sundays in Advent on a three-year cycle, uh, or four readings on a, on a three-year cycle, sorry. And so I have not been choosing the readings, but they've been chosen for me in the wisdom of the church. And the Revised Common Lectionary is sort of used across all sorts of denominations, from Presbyterian to uh, Catholics have an overlap with the Revised Common Lectionary, lots of similarity, but not always the same readings. In Advent, I think, were the same. So these scriptures have been read today in many different churches And heard in many different ways. Now, because it's on a three-year cycle, as a pastor, you're like, "Oh, that reading again! Oh, that reading again!" And and then you have congregants. This is a joke from earlier in this sermon series that give you a hard time about, like, "We love Advent; it's always the same," Um, and you don't take it as a compliment. Um, And then, for some reason, you decide that fourth reading, the one that always seems avoided, because we have the psalm, and the psalm is often. not preached on, although I do enjoy preaching on the psalm. Today's psalm has that beautiful phrase about, O Lord, come save us. It fits Advent very well. Um, o come, O come, Emmanuel, rescue captive Israel. Like, that's one of the places we inhabit. The second one on the Old Testament, and it varies in the three years, um, when it's Matthew's year, which is this year, it's always Isaiah. Um, and Isaiah has this sort of simple way is that it leads right into the story everybody's anticipating. We had the root of Jesse in one of the weeks. We had this preparation. T- today we have this uh, very explicit reference that's even used directly in Matthew, that there will be a son and they shall call him Emmanuel and he will be God with us. So another easy one. <laughs> uh, then you've got the gospel readings, which are the ones that we always tend to, to default to and gravitate towards as preachers and as Christians. This is where Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, acts in the world, and we get to see that. And so those are the ones. Now, one of the, the, the banes of many people's existence during Advent preachers um, is that there's two John the Baptist Sundays, which makes it hard to, to sort of do. But I've done those ones before. But this year, I was like, what if we do the epistle readings, Those readings from Paul and the book of James this year. What do those lead us to in those seasons? Those two are holy scripture. Those two are meant to enlighten and enliven our lives. And when they're put into different time, they gather different meaning too. If you were preaching through Romans, you would chronologically approach all of the things that we've read so far. Yet we started in 13, went to 15, took a detour to the book of James, Uh, Last week, which had that beautiful phrase, strengthen your hearts for the Lord is coming. Strengthen your hearts for the Lord is coming. And then jumps back to Romans 1. This has been sort of um, biblical aerobics, back and forth, back and forth. But focusing on those readings has sort of changed the meaning of Advent for me a little bit. When you sit with with the Isaiah readings, with those readings, you're you're moving into this place of anticipation. You're sitting as Israel sits, awaiting what God is going to do through the Messiah. It calls us into that spot of waiting. If you're focused on the gospel readings, and they too do a little bit of a shift, we had John preparing the way and then a jump to him in prison, but the question he is asking is, are you the one? This was last week. Are you the one we're waiting for? It's the same question that builds up in us at Advent. Is Jesus the one that we are waiting for and placing that in our hope? Um, I've been teasing using all of them, but I've been trying to lean on on the epistle readings, but the epistle readings have brought to mind to me, one, how much more the writers of the New Testament are sitting in anticipation of Christ's return. That they've seen the goodness begun in the Messiah coming, The healings, the redemption, the gathering of the Gentiles, those who weren't Israel, into the church body. And we talked about this in Paul this week too. He says, what was told to us in the scriptures. Earlier in my Christian life, I was like, yeah, like the Gospel of John. Um, Whereas most scholars would say, Paul's writing before any of the New Testament is really circulating yet. When Paul says what was told to us in the scriptures, he's writing to this Gentile audience about Isaiah, about Genesis, about the Old Testament. And he's saying that that is what we're going back to as we're seeing it fulfilled in our world. They've had this foretaste, and what they're then looking for is the return of this one. Strengthen your hearts, for the Lord is coming near. I've used this image in the past, but it it can capture me this way, um, is is that we look, uh, and this is sort of the cultural way of sort of doing Christmas, but it's true too, is that we place ourselves looking for that manger, looking for that time. Um, The the text this year pushed us into waiting for that second coming, that's a grown Jesus on a horse. Everybody knew that. And, and I think the third one in the middle, which I often forget about, is, and, and Paul, I think, in the reading sits this too, is that the Lord is near to us. That we gather in the church and we gather, in, and there's a sense in which God is here because God has gathered us together. And we meet him in this place at this time. So we have those ways of sort of looking at it. And I wanted to go back to that, that first Romans reading for a, a second. Um, Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is the moment for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is here. This, for me, as we've looked at what the later part of the New Testament is trying to tell us about Christ in the way that we might say we're awaiting an advent, we're awaiting an arrival, is it saying that there's one that is now near to us, The night is far gone the day is here so for me in this season it's been it's been putting us more and more I think at the edge of what God might be about to do it's been um, for me calling to mind sort of uh, the pressures not in a good or bad way necessarily although it contains both of, of what does that expectation mean Ethically, you know, if you had so much time to live, what would you do? Um, A common question, but to say, as we sit here when the night is far gone and the day is near, how does that change how I prepare myself and think about my life? How as I move towards sort of this this celebration of the incarnation when God is with us, Emmanuel is near to us? What am I actually sort of... um, being drawn into as I look forward. I think this is choosing to sort of focus on those later texts has pushed me more into the looking forward than I have been in Advent, which is weird because the church in its, its seasons, um, Advent, Lent, Easter, uh, Pentecost, season after Pentecost or ordinary time, um, Epiphany, um, Advent is, is probably the only time where we'll lean forward in that way we well, would be caught in that return way. Um, and so often, I think it's become a looking back thing. Um, and there's beauty and goodness in that, to inhabit that space. But my hope is this year, that leaning forward thing has maybe meant something, a different shade to Advent, a different shade to how we think of ourselves, particularly because so much of the New Testament is focused on that jump forward. And so as I was reading this week, I just want to read this one quote, and then we'll jump into sort of a a quicker journey through the text today. But um, this is from uh, Karl Barth. We live in the midst of the living revelation of Christ, that revelation which has already occurred and that which shall yet occur. We live between the word which we have heard in all its sufficiency and the word which we must hear in all its overpowering novelty. We do not live between birth and death. We live between baptism and the Lord's Supper. We do not live in the present. We live by that constant reminder of that which has been an exception of that, of, for that, of that which is to come. We do not live in our time. We live in God's time. We live in this brief, dark, and yet not totally dark world. It is this brief and semi-dark because from its beginning and its end, there have been streams of the light banished from the night, from the two brilliant days of God, which in truth are not two days, but one day of Jesus Christ, the day that was and the day that which is coming. The day that was and the day that which is coming. That's where we sit in Advent, that challenge of the day that was and the day that is coming. It is, in the midst of the night, which is our day, that day is. The only foundation of the church consists in the fact that the night has been encompassed by this day of Jesus Christ, and that this day of Christ is the day of our life. That as we sit in the night, it is the night encompassed in the light of Jesus Christ. And so as, as I've sat with, with the epistle text this year, that becomes more clear. Paul is always saying, the night is almost over. The full day has yet to come. And while we might experience them as two separate days, it is one day encompassing the night that breaks into our lives. And this brings us to the psalm for today. The psalm has this notion within it of these two days and two times as well. The psalm is, both, is the psalm of lament, but it says that God has been here. But its main request, and it, and it shows up in this way, is restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. And you'll see it at the end again. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we might be saved. The people know God's presence, and you'll see it even more in that phrase in the middle that you have fed us with the bread of tears. In Israel's history, they're fed with the bread of God's presence, and yet they know something of the presence having gone out. Instead of being fed with presence, they're fed with bread of tears. Restore us, God. This names the place in which we are captured in between the times of knowing that God's presence is meant to sustain us, and yet we find times in which there is nothing. We are eating the bread of tears. And so the prayers of Psalm 80 are that we would be restored, that God's face would come upon us. And face is is one of my favorite sort of biblical images because it also connotates presence. When you see a face in a crowd as you're looking for someone, you sense presence. They're not just asking for God's face to be upon them to, to sort of have him be there, but to be the presence which guides them in a different way. Not to just say that this is our God, but to have that presence be near to them, to have that restoration come. Here, too, the church prays as well. As we exist in that night, we pray a bread of tears, and we want that presence to appear the reading from Isaiah, and, and, and Brian saying yes to that reading, that I, you read all the hard, hard, hard words and didn't get the easy uh, Christmassy ones. Um, that would be like punishment if I was mad at you as a congregant to say, can you come and read, uh, and then, um, and I'm not mad at you, because uh, you're the treasurer and I can never be mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, But here, and it was good that Brian read the whole thing because it sets it in sort of a socio-political conflict that that Ahaz is in this spot. There's two other kings. And that line that Brian read, I I love, he's worried about these two other kings. And what Isaiah calls them is that they're just two smoldering logs. They have some heat, but they're going out. Now, this is a challenge for the church as well. We think every threat that comes to us personally, ecclesiologically as a church, culturally, is a bonfire waiting to consume us. And yet when the prophet comes, when one of God's comes, he'll remind you, it may burn a little, but that fire is going out. You stand with God. God is the one who is near to you. What happens after that is he says to ask for a sign. Now, Ahaz, like us, um, there's this nearness that I think comes with knowing God and being near to God um, that we don't want to test. Um, And and Ahaz here kind of looks pious. Moses tells the people not to test their God earlier, but but here he's being asked by God's prophet to ask for a sign to be reassured. God comes to us when we think bonfires are approaching. What sign might I give you to reassure you? I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Part of it is we're so afraid of disappointment. But part of it is so much of our identity comes from the threats that we see around us as well. If I didn't have that to be worried about, who would I be? If I didn't have my anxiety, my stress, my neurosis, my dependencies on, on things, this, that, and the other. If, if God could really free me from those, I don't know who I'd be on the other side of that. Ahaz gets to ask for a sign to be relieved from those things, and he will not test the Lord. Luckily for us, God does not leave us there. Here now, your house of David, is not just to try the patience of humans, but you also try the patience of God. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. This phrase to Ahaz meant more along the lines that a child will be born. And by the time that he's two, these things which you are basing, your identity, your life, your fears, your kingdom off of will be gone. But what Matthew hears, we can jump to that reading, What Matthew hears in this reading is is an echo of what happens with Jesus. Is that Jesus is born of this virgin and he too is truly Emmanuel, God with us. The first one that Isaiah is referring to is a bit of God is with you because you know the threats have receded. What Matthew sees with it is God is with us because he's actually with us. And he is actively disarming the threats that make up the world. He's actively performing miracles and teaching and preaching and being a sign of that which is now being extinguished. And so we have a different man, Joseph. Um, Joseph uh, finds out that Mary is with child at the Genesis of of Jesus Christ, and, and being a righteous man, he decides to dismiss her quietly. Um, there's a lot you can read into that, um, but, but he, he decides that he, he doesn't want to make a scene of this, um, and so he wants to divorce her privately. But in the midst of that, an angel appeared to him in a dream. Joseph Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I thought I had that up hit there. Yes. Um He will save their people from their sins. There's a bit of a play on words at that last part because Jesus means save us or God will save us or um, Yahweh helps us, something like that. And so Jesus saves, you will name him God saves because he will save us from our sins. And this is um, the sign that Joseph is given. Joseph has this quiet obedience to him. Um, Mary is often talked a lot about during Advent for good reason, um, but Joseph is often skipped over. Um, But he has this quiet obedience of, of, and if you pair him with Ahaz, you see someone who says, I will not test the Lord. I will not ask for a sign. I want my identity to be this way. And then you've got Joseph who seems to be accepting of what the God is displaying to him in faithful obedience in small and simple ways. And he receives this sign and does what this sign asks of him. And that saves us from our sins thing is is this way in which if you look at what Israel has been through, one of my favorite uh, phrases is God is whoever um, raised Jesus from the dead, having previously raised Israel out of Egypt. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, uh, having previously raised Israel out of Egypt. The first sign, and Matthew's going to overlay Moses on Jesus quite a bit, is he took his people from oppression and slavery and um, out into the wilderness to bring them to the promised land. This is what faithful Jews, and if we were there too, might have been anticipating at this time. This one who comes to us will save us from Rome. But what we find often in these readings, particularly in the New Testament, is that God has this bigger mission that he's undertaking with Jesus, which is that there's oppression and slavery that comes from the outside, and then there's oppression and slavery that comes not just from the inside, but from the whole world. That, that what was in, happening in Egypt was evidence of sin, And what we live through and put ourselves through and how we live our lives is different evidence of sin. Or to put it this way, in in Paul's language, which he will, is that Christ comes to free us from death through his resurrection. You can be freed from slavery, but sin, which is its wages, will still kill you. God's undertaking in Jesus is meant to be more expansive to that, following the sign that came before, but also... Uh, liberating us as well. His name, Jesus, uh, Yahweh helps save us from our sins. And that she will be born of a virgin, I think has this way of, of pointing these two ages out. What we find often in the old age is that God is um, working in his miraculous births with the barren, where there is no hope that you might save yourself. That door has closed Sarah and others, too old and barren to have children. Their God brings life. But here, for the advent of the New Age, Jesus, God decides to work his miraculous power through virgin. And you can see the difference there, that something new is going to begin, that something's going to be transformed in that way. Now, I know there's, there's people who struggle with the virgin birth, this, that, and the other, which is not something I want to get into today at all. Um, but I do think what awakens us to it in certain ways is how the miraculous has been born within us. Then we see the miraculous in the world. There's an old Methodist story about a man who was an alcoholic who becomes uh, a Christian um, and he, His coworkers are giving him a hard time, and they ask him, do you really believe in the virgin birth and that Jesus raised from the dead and that he turned water into wine? And the man replies back, I don't know if he turned water into wine, but he turned wine into furniture in my house. Um, He had been freed from alcoholism. It had turned wine to furniture in his house. So often with the miraculous, I think what happens for me is that I see in which what God has done in my life. How the doors of faith have been open. How these things have been transformed. That, that it doesn't become an issue as much as did this really happen. As much as God is already doing miraculous things that I see in the advent in the midst of this world. I believe in the virgin birth. Um, but I also believe the miraculous happens for us today as well. And so there's that sign as well. This one, uh, is, I gave that long introduction on how we get these readings. The Romans 1, 1 through 7 reading just baffled me as why the lectionary people would pick it. Um, uh, there's, there's so much good in it, but it's such a uh, challenging reading. And it's um, d- how many tabs do people have open on their browser right now? 22, 30, th- Shelly, how many? 33, yeah. So if you go through Romans 1 and you open every reference, you're going to have like 40 tabs open on your browser. It's a thick, thick passage in which Paul is also not just announcing who he is, but he's, he's giving a, a tight summary of the gospel he's about to expound for the next 16 chapters. Um, and so I was frustrated with, what do they want me to do with that? Um, this is also why pastors should read ahead. Um, that's confession time. Um But as I sat with it, I I realized that what comes in this section that's up on the screen, that the gospel he prepared through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who has an earthly life, was a descendant of David. It's reminding them that this is the renewed David who comes to lead them. And through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in the power of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through him received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. The church today is largely made up of those who are being called to obedience of faith for his name's sake. That is no small news, by the way. Most of the latter half of the New Testament is made up of the question of what to do with all these people who are being brought in Through what God has done in Jesus Christ? How are we going to handle all these people who aren't Israel? But more than that, what we're being called into is this obedience of faith. That this reading for us today can point us backwards to what we know through the prophets, that what we received as Gentiles is this king of David in his lineage. Not our history, but our history through Jesus Christ. It's an important thing to remember. We are grafted into this, Paul will later say in Romans. Not our history, but grafted into that as our history because of this one Jesus Christ. What we see in his sonship and his power in the resurrection of the dead is so that we might be called into the obedience that comes through faith as I began that that cross pressure of these two ages coming together that has sort of become more real for me this Advent has called me into this, what does it mean to be called into the obedience of faith? How might the expectation of Christ's return shape the obedience of faith in my midst, in my life, in our time? Big questions. Paul ends this introduction with this classic grace and peace. It's so often that we forget. It. He says it every letter that it becomes um, rote, I think, sometimes. There's a great New Testament scholar, Richard Hayes, who tried to write a book on every theme that appeared in the New Testament. It's a wonderful book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. And an uh, Anabaptist scholar I like, Willard Swartley, was in conversation with us, and he said the th- word you miss that is in every book of the New Testament is peace. Richard Hayes had spent his whole life studying Paul. That the phrase "Grace and peace to him" disappeared from the page. Disappears for us often too. Is oh, Paul saying grace and peace again? Now, moving on, moving on. But grace and peace. It is this season that these are things that we hear in our songs. Often peace as well. And I was studying this week. This will be the final thing. Is is this? From Augustine, he says, the forgiveness and the gift of the Christian family may be he means by grace the defeat. uh, uh, The gift of the family is what he means by grace, that we are gathered here, that we've been brought into a new community, that grace can be here. But the second one, the thing that I love, and the defeat of invisible uh, enemies by peace. So often the peace I think of around Christmas in relationship to the gospel is a weak peace. It's just a peace. It's the absence of conflict, I think, is so often what that means. But the peace that comes through Christ, the peace that Ahaz is seeking, the peace that comes with freedom from our sins, is a strong peace. And it's the leaving behind of those enemies that he's calling us into. This is the good news. And so as we approach the Christmas season, may grace and peace reign in us. Let us pray. God, you have called us your people here today through your grace. That we are the community we are is only a function of your grace working in the world. It is the grace that we saw in the gift of your son and the gift of that sign that was promised to Ahaz that comes in your fulfillment. That he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus. God helps. God saves comes to save us and deliver us from our sins be near to us now strengthen our hearts for the Lord is near restore us bring your face and presence near to us and may we see your peace begin to reign in the world Two or many kings we might think surround us, ready to devour us. Our own comforts, addictions, enemies, difficulties, cultural concerns. May we know in light of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, that those things are diminishing in the world. (coughs) And it is your grace and peace that magnifies.